Welcome everybody, my name is Mikhail Nasrani and this is Islam for Christians, episode 30, Quran, Surah 109, Al-Kafirun, The Disbelievers. Say, O disbelievers, I worship not that which ye worship, nor worship ye that which I worship, and I shall not worship that which ye worship, nor will ye worship that which I worship. Unto you your religion, and unto me my religion. And now the Arabic, as recited by Saad al Ghamdi. This is a nice, short, early Meccan surah. It's often used as a surah calling for religious tolerance. More on that later. But keep in mind the context under which this surah was revealed. Christians are not being addressed here, and neither are Jews. The audience is Arab pagans, and only Arab pagans. This would have been in the early years of Muhammad's ministry, and at this point in time, there probably were very few Christians around, and maybe even a Jew or two. But none of them were taking part in the Islamic story yet, at least not a major part. The relationship between Muslims and Jews would become much more important after the Hijra, when the Muslims were in a Jewish community in Medina. And Christian-Muslim issues would come far, far later, when the Islamic Empire started to eat into Byzantium and other historically Christian places like North Africa. So this is strictly a God versus pagans debate here in this surah. It is sometimes extended to Islam's relationship to Jews and Christians, but that certainly wasn't the original context. So before diving into the larger meaning of the text, let me give a few important details on the text itself. The first line defines the audience here. Oh, disbelievers. So what is a disbeliever? At least in this context, it's actually broader than you might think. The word is also translated as those who reject faith or those who deny the truth. The word here, as seen in the Arabic title of the surah, is al-kafirun, a plural version of kafir, which is an infidel or an unbeliever. The Arabic root of this is k, the simple English k. So it's k-f-r, kufr. K-f-r, the verb, means to cover or to hide which is why some commentators emphasize the willful denial of plain truth in their translations. They're not saying that these people are wrong. They're saying that they are willfully denying what is obviously true. It's not just that someone saw something and said, I don't believe that. There's an element of willful ignorance or prideful indifference to the truth. The Old Testament version of this might be stiff-necked people.
As some Quranic commentators have pointed out, though, this is not necessarily just for non-Muslims. This surah is actually very important for Muslims as well, for self-reflection. I mean, after all, what is faith? Faith is a pure conviction on a personal level. Does a Muslim really have faith if he is a professed Muslim? What about the person living in a Gulf Emirate who is a Muslim simply because the government told him that he has to be a Muslim? Has he imbibed any of the spirit of his professed religion? Does that person have faith? Or is he one of the kafirun? Remember Muhammad's version of the golden rule, addressed in an earlier Hadith episode. None of you truly believes until he wishes for his brother what he wishes for himself. So right off the bat, the people, or the type of people being addressed, is not universally agreed upon here. It can be narrow in the historical sense, just the pagans, or more broad to include all non-Muslim faiths, or read in a strictly spiritual capacity as well. You can see that as a bug or a feature. Either way, you're probably right. So then we have the next four lines. I worship not that which ye worship, nor worship ye that which I worship. And I shall not worship that which ye worship, nor will ye worship that which I worship. The first and second halves here seem a bit redundant, but there is a small difference. The first half is the present tense, and the second half is the future tense. Given that these sound almost identical, this may have been soothing for those hearing it at the time who simply craved maintaining the status quo. This was, after all, the way it had been at the Kaaba for a very, very long time. Live and let live with religion. Worship and let worship. But I don't think many at the time knew just how different the God of Abraham actually was. Not only an exclusive God, but a God with an extraordinary track record of obliterating rivals. Christianity had already shown what a universal message tied to the God of Abraham could do. Universal meaning this God was no longer just the God of Israel. This God was the God of the whole world. And anyone paying attention in Mecca was probably seeing how one-sided this fight would eventually become. Why? Even at this early date, it was clear that the pagans would become Muslims, but Muslims would never become pagans. And that's an attritional battle the pagans could never win. And the effect of these religions really wasn't the same either. Pagans could recognize Allah, but Muslims would never recognize pagan gods. You know, think of the human heart as a piece of paper. The pagan religions were a highlighter, adding color, giving specific attention to something, but allowing other things to be seen as well. But Allah, Muhammad's version of Allah, was a giant black permanent marker that blacked out everything beneath it. I've also read commentaries arguing that lines four and five don't represent the future tense at all, but rather the will and the desire of each community. The Muslims do not desire to worship what the pagans worship, and the pagans do not desire to worship what the Muslims worship. But if you listen to the words, you can just hear the Quran at the end of line five 
whispering the words, the word, yet. Nor will ye desire to worship what I worship, yet. And this is part of the hidden message I think many of the Muslims may have seen that the pagans just did not see. Almost as if it was written in invisible ink. It was encouraging to those who were being persecuted, cementing their status as a permanent faith community, no matter what the pagans thought. And it may have also been warning the pagans. The Muslims are steadfast in their faith and will not be convinced otherwise. So now the last line. Unto you your religion, and unto me my religion. The word for religion here is also translated as moral law, or ways, or something similar. The Arabic word is deen, which is something you should file away in your mind, actually. You may have heard this before, even outside of religion. For example, uh, you English-speaking history buffs know about a guy named Saladin, but that's not really his name. You know, he's not a side of lettuce, tomatoes, and ranch dressing. The name is Salah al-Din, meaning righteousness of the faith, the last syllable being the important one, Dean. Dean is the Muslim word for faith, and the key aspect of it is obedience to moral or religious authority, or submission. That's what Islam is about, submission to God and his sunnah, his laws, his words, his commands. Dean is one of those rare words that comes from two consonants and a long vowel rather than three consonants. In this case, a simple D-A-N. The A doesn't tend to get pronounced much, but that's the nature of these weird verbs. And honestly, they make me completely nuts when you're trying to find these things. They're very hard to identify in text. There are two versions of this root. The first means indebtedness or to borrow or to owe allegiance. But the second version is religiously specific, the practice of a religion or the practice of a tradition. But you see the common theme, to acknowledge a truth and submit to it. A debtor acknowledges his, his debt and pays it back. A Muslim acknowledges that God has created him and he follows God's law. And this is also a fun verb for a Christian to play with too. And after all, isn't the heart of Christianity about Dean? A Christian acknowledges the debt of sin which cannot be paid back, and also acknowledges the debt Christ paid on our behalf to settle that debt and reconcile us with God. And it's following the Christian Dean that allows us to accept the free gift paid through Christ through our faith. So, big picture here. What is the larger purpose of this surah? Originally, it was to give the Muslims the proper attitude toward those around them who did not yet understand. I think it would be especially useful for a Muslim, or really any believer in the God of Abraham, who lives in a community of actual atheists or de facto pagans. I think this surah would be infinitely helpful. Let's think of a devout Christian or a Muslim living in the United States. And say they're in a big, rich, permissive city like San Francisco. How do you conduct yourself when surrounded by that level of ignorance and disbelief? Here's the message the Quran is conveying. 
You need to be firm and secure in your faith, unafraid to profess it. You know the truth, so hold on to the truth as tightly as you can without regard to the consequences. There can be no compromise in matters of faith. However, this does not mean you have to persecute and belittle the ignorant hordes around you. Yes, they are silly people, and it's okay to pity the emptiness they have chosen for themselves, but there's no need to persecute them. You should try to persuade them, but it should be carrot and not stick. Remember, you want an actual conversion here, a deep, permanent change of heart. You won't get that through coercion. Mind your faith and let the unbelievers be. Them to their religion, you to yours. However, <laughs> and this is a giant neon flashing however, in most Islamic circles, this surah is largely seen as conditional. When the unbelievers start to force their faith on believers by bribery, by coercion, by force, or by fraud, that's when they have crossed the line and this no longer applies. For example, let's say a local atheist group comes into a mosque offering $10,000 to anyone who renounces Islam. At this point, you can throw Surah 109 right out the window. But few things are really this clear-cut. Where exactly do you draw the line between tolerating the unbelievers and fighting them? It's a very tough question, and it's a very important one. You know, the place where this line is drawn has been a source of constant conflict in the Muslim world. There's a long history of extremists who want to do nothing but fight. The ancient Karajites, for example, were so eager for a fight, they didn't even bother to look outside the Muslim religion for transgressing infidels. They were right in front of them. Basically, any Muslim who was not acting exactly like them was deemed an unbeliever. And that that unbeliever should be met with swift and overwhelming violence. This goes for many of their spiritual cousins in the Muslim world. On the other hand, there are the more liberal, pluralist Muslims who don't really have a line at all. Like, if you've ever seen the Canadian show Little Mosque on the Prairie, it's all right. It has some funny moments. Uh, I actually kind of liked it. I, I can recommend it. But uh, the Imam in that show, the character of Amar, would be one of these people. But for most, it's in between these extremes. And it's not really easy to figure out that line. Let's go back to the Muslim living in San Francisco. You know, just imagine you are this person, even if you're not a Muslim, just imagine you are this person. You're a Muslim, and let's even say you were raised in a very conservative society. Now, Islamic law, in all but its most extreme liberal readings, pretty clearly condemns homosexuality. So if you have a school that insists on teaching your children that this is a wonderful thing, have they crossed that tolerance line? What if you were being socially, co <laughs> socially coerced to celebrate lifestyles contrary to your religion? What about a boss who won't let you attend Friday prayers? What about a Christian who wants to tell you about Christ? You know, and this can be expanded. You know, it's not just individuals who grapple with this question of where to draw the line. Muslim governments around the world, they seem draconian and intolerant by Western standards. They're actually grappling with the same question. You know, at what point 
are the unbelievers transgressing on the believers? In these days, the question rarely, if ever, involves pagans, like it did with Sora 109. Honestly, there just aren't many of those around anymore. It's Saudi Arabia, for example, making the Bible forbidden literature. The Saudi government has decided, probably with a ton of input from the religious conservatives who they understandably fear, that a Bible constitutes invasive, predatory coercion. Now, I'm an American Christian. You can probably guess what I think about this. Now, I'm not excusing this from the Saudis, but rather trying to help people understand where the Saudi government is coming from. You know, it's actually pretty routine in many Muslim countries that religious minorities are tolerated, but they'd better not build churches or pretend that they are equals. You know, this is a more draconian interpretation of the line between tolerating someone else's existence and viewing them as a threat. You know, it's hard to unpack how much of this is actually Islam and how much of this is just culture. You know, I'd love to see how a majority Muslim country would look in the Western Hemisphere, but that just doesn't exist. You know, instead, we have places like the Middle East where the sectarian lines haven't moved for a thousand years. And that only happens if you draw a very firm line regarding religion. Other majority Muslim places, Morocco, for instance, they take a softer line, you know, and their more cosmopolitan societies reflect that. And often a strong man can draw the line wherever he pleases. Um, Al-Sisi in Egypt, for example, after quite literally overthrowing the Muslim Brotherhood, actually helped build churches for the country's Coptic Christians, which, uh, for those who don't know, Egypt is about 10% Christian and has been for a very, very long time. The Coptic Christians, who tend to live further south, actually claim to be the true ethnic Egyptians. You know, those guys who built the pyramids long before the Arabs showed up. So now, back to individual concerns. I'll give you another example of drawing the line on an individual level. Say you're not in the United States where religious freedom is not only legally guaranteed, but so ingrained in the culture that infringing it is exceptionally difficult. Instead, say you're an individual in Western China. Maintaining your deen, your faith, is basically illegal unless you are willing to do it the way the Chinese government says you have to do it. Christians have the same problem, by the way. Um, in China. It's not just Muslims. It's just that there are way more Muslims to oppress in China than there are Christians, I think. <laughs> so imagine you were being threatened with imprisonment in a concentration camp. You know, the loss of your livelihood and almost everything. Will Sura 109 ever have any relevance to your life? Or is it just discarded the way Western democracies tend to jettison common notions of freedom and liberty once an emergency is declared? You know, and that's the context in which I see SOAR 109, a norm that is preferable, but not always sustainable. In a way, you can almost think of this SOAR as a luxury SOAR. If you can point to this SOAR and say that it describes your life, which is full of tolerance and understanding, you are a lucky person indeed. Surah 109 sets the Muslim default as live and let live. 
and only under extreme circumstances should a believer ever contemplate, instead, to live and let die. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Insha'Allah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.